Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. Welcome to the Daily Jungle. Always good to have you here. The Cubs live to see yet another day, and now they've got to face Clayton Kershaw. The Yankees ran down Astros' Dallas Keuchel, and now Houston is on the verge of elimination. Plus, Joel Embiid made his 2017 debut, and I am all about trusting the process. All of that and three excellent guests. Yahoo's Jeff Passan, who came to talk postseason baseball and to clown left. Orlando coach Frank Vogel after the Magic win their opener and Tennessee Titans defensive tackle Jarrell Casey. Albie, go ahead. It's all yours. Let's start with some baseball. Nice of the defending world champions to actually show up to the series last night. It's about time. The Cubs get the win over the Dodgers. So credit where credit is due, I guess. At least they didn't quit. At least they didn't just roll over. But they did spend the first three games of the NLCS sleepwalking and stumbling around. They finally showed a little pulse last night. Now, I'm not saying that was a full-on paddle hit, the kind that brings you all the way back from the dead, but at least they're going down with a fight. There was no way that they were going to get swept in this series and have the Dodgers celebrate in their house. They were not going to get bounced at home like that. Wilson Contreras made sure of that when he got things started off with a monster, I mean a titanic shot in the second inning. And the Cubs just could not lay off of those pitches, and they're having a tough time now. Here's a deep drive to left by Wilson Contreras. Get out the tape measure, long gone. Wilson Contreras with a booming home run to left. Cubs lead one to nothing. Thanks to Cubs Radio for that. That ball got out in a hurry. Damn near knocked over the scoreboard in the process. And while he did not break the scoreboard, he did break a couple of records. At 491 feet, that was the longest postseason home run in the stat cast era. That ball left the yard in a hurry. In a hurry. Contreras, on the other hand, was in no hurry at all. It took him 30.85 seconds to round the bases. I'd call that the slowest trot of the season, but it wasn't even a trot. That was much closer to a shuffle or a saunter. And more than anything else, of course, a nod to Yasiel Puig, who is doing Yasiel Puig things once again, and the Cubs obviously don't like it. And they weren't done launching bombs either in the second. Enter Javi Baez, hitless in the postseason until he saw a 1-1 hook from Alex Wood. Here's the windup and the 1-1 to Baez. Drilled in the air, deep left field, down the line of it's fair, it's gone. That ball is going to be... A home run! The Cubs with another home run. Javier Baez right down the line and left. Cubs lead two to nothing. Feast or famine. I mean, they're still hitting well below 200, but they're hitting home runs. So the Dodgers come back with one in the top of the third, but the way Jake Arrieta was pitching, that 2-1 lead, which became a 3-1 lead, felt a lot bigger than that. Brass performance from Arrieta when the Cubs had to have it most. If he's not on... They're breaking out the golf clubs this morning. Instead, they get to take BP for another game. One problem, that game is against Clayton Kershaw. Nice reward, huh? Battle to stay in the series, and then you get to face the greatest pitcher of his generation to try to stay in the series once again. And I understand that Kershaw has not necessarily been the Kershaw that we know since coming out the DL, but you know that he would like nothing better than to be the guy to carry the Dodgers into their first World Series in nearly 30 years. The other thing the Cubs fans have to keep in mind is that even though the Dodgers lost last night for the first time in the postseason, and by the way, did anybody really think they were going to run the table? 
That wasn't going to happen anyway. But more importantly, they did not implode. They kept grinding. They spent most of the game one or two swings away from tying it. They kept on working, kept on putting pressure on the Cubs, and they nearly found a way to rip it in the eighth. So that's got to make Dodger fans feel pretty good. Oh, and they have Clayton Kershaw going tonight, which is nice. However, another game from the Cubs means we got ourselves another game of Joe Madden pressers. The guy who dropped the first dry hump in postseason history earlier in the week was back at it again last night after getting run in the eighth inning. Let me set that stage. Dodgers outfielder Curtis Granderson swung and missed at a third strike. Initially, he was called out. The Dodgers argued that he had fouled it off, and the umpires changed their mind and called that a foul ball, even though the replay showed that he didn't make contact. Joe Madden lost it in an argument with the umps, and then he was run. Andy was right, but what he said afterwards was just plain wrong. I'm not going to sit here and bang on umpires. I, and I love a lot of guys on this crew. I've known them for a long time. But that can't happen. That, the process was horrible. Uh, to have that change, and if Granderson hits the next pitch out, you know, I might come running out of the clubhouse you know, my jock strap. I mean, that was like really that bad. If Granderson hits the next pitch out, probably not that night. Not with four strikeouts. Did he just threaten to run out of his, uh, of his clubhouse throwing a jockstrap? I mean, first guy's talking about dry humping his relievers, and now he's talking about running out in a jockstrap. Come on, Joe. Come on, Joe. You can't be throwing out mental images like that. Now, look, I don't care how right you are, and umpire Jim Wolf admitted after the game that he blew that call. But I don't care how right you are as a manager. There's no way you can run onto the field without your pants on or even talk about doing that. On my jockstrap. When you hear that, even Dodger fans have to be relieved that Granderson struck out. And they have to be really hoping that the Dodgers close it out tonight without any drama because the last thing anybody needs to see is an angry, pantsless Joe Madden. So if the Cubs are going to turn this thing around and get through, they've got to get through Kershaw then Rich Hill, then you Darvish, and it's still not happening. But no, no surprise there. They were not going to get swept, and the Dodgers weren't going to run the table. So here we are. He is Jeff Passan. Jeff, good morning. What's going on? Wait, Jim, you're telling me Leff actually showed up uh, on non-smack-off uh, day without uh, a, a bunch of people in tow or a helicopter or something else that he's going to use to uh, gimmick his way to the top? He gimmicky little bitch. No, you're right. It's a good point. Except he did not bum rush the studio with that tweet, Jeff. He just tweeted. So he didn't really show ah. up, show up. It was a tweet. But your point All is right. well taken. Yeah. Your his, point is his, very his, well taken. His, his, his Twitter game is, is mediocre at best, too. That's the, you know, that's the problem, Jim. That, that, that's the problem with and, – and I haven't had a chance to address this, but uh, others have done it more eloquently than me. And by more eloquently, uh, I mean – uh, not eloquently at all because the, these are clones we're talking about. But the fact that left won this year again, like the the judging. Uh, listen, I understand Jim that uh, th- this this found a place uh, of sentimentality in your heart, and uh, that it was good to see uh, a bunch of old people. Uh, it, it, you know, it was like a visit to the clone nursing home. But uh, you got to get past this thing with left man. It's about the smack. It's not about the people he knows. It's not about the lengths to which he's willing to go 
to to impress you. It's about the words. It's always been about the words. It's always going to be about the words. And I don't know if there needs to be like a smack off rubric or something that happens next year beforehand, but got to change, man. Get it all out, brother. Get it all out. Let it all out. In other words, let me translate that for you, clones. He's a gimmicky little bitch. Is that what you're saying? That's about right. (laughs) Jeff Patson joining us. Whatever we do, Jeff, let's not let the ALCS get in the way of a good take. All right, so now we got a few minutes left to talk some baseball. Unless you're done. Do you want to go back to that, or are you good? No, no, no. We're good. We're good. Yeah. I got off my chest. It's been, it's been weighing on me How'd for a feel? couple months now. How'd that feel? It's, you know, feels good. Feels good. I, I feel like I should be laying on a couch right now somewhere and talking about uh, bad childhood memories. Good. But uh, it's, it's strong. There you go. All right, so now listen, you have never been afraid to take a controversial stance or write a column that might ruffle some feathers, but you've gone a step further than most with your piece, which is up on Yahoo right now. And we don't even need to get into the column itself, just the headline. The headline says it all, quote, the New York Yankees are actually likable. Did you ever think, Jeff, that you would write a piece that would have that headline? I never thought the Yankees would be in the position where they are right now, where everything's conspired to come together and make it this way. Um, they've always been a team that has spent exorbitantly more uh, than all the other teams out there. They've always been the team, uh, and by always, I mean over like the last 15 or 20 years. Uh, they, they've been the team uh, that hasn't been homegrown, that's been going out and purchasing players and bringing in mercenaries from the free agent market and haven't been as much as a team as they've been a, a collection of highly paid players. But if you go up and down this roster right now, the way that this team was put together uh, was done in a way that you would appreciate if they weren't named the New York Yankees. If, if the Kansas City Royals did this, if the Arizona Diamondbacks did this, if the Tampa Bay Rays did this, you'd be saying that it's an extremely well-run organization. They drafted Aaron Judge. Uh, they signed Gary Sanchez out of the Dominican Republic. They uh, traded for for Didi Gregorius when his value wasn't quite as high, uh, and nobody really thought he would be much of an offensive player. Again, drafted and developed Greg Bird. Uh, you know, dealt for Aaron Hicks when his value was low. Uh, signed Luis Severino. I mean, you can go on and on and on about the the number of players who have either come up through this system or who they've identified as being talents that they might be able to develop. And because of that, and because of the fact that these are all, by by most accounts, pretty good guys who are out there and young and having fun and playing a really enjoyable brand of baseball these days, it's just a fun team to watch. And it's difficult, in my mind, to look at the Yankees themselves, look at the players who are on this team, and say, that they're not enjoyable. I understand if you have some sort of like Yankee bias in you uh, that you're never going to be able to do that, but that's your problem. And I think that if, if you are a baseball fan and you're looking forward to, to seeing a team in the future that's going to be good for a while, th- this is one of those teams to focus on. Jeff Passan joins us. You know, Jeff, to that point, that if you've got a Yankee bias in you, you're not hearing this and you don't believe this. As an example, somebody on Twitter hits you with, quote, this is the sort of thing that makes Yankee hatred easy. The suggestion that Aaron Judge is likable is laughable, end quote. All right, so for those who have not spent time around Judge, what's he like? Uh, I'm going to give you uh, an anecdote here, and I feel like this is going to describe everything you need to know. Matt Holliday has been around baseball his entire life. His father is a baseball coach, uh, grew up around the sport. And 
they're in Kansas City. The Yankees are in Kansas City this year, and I've known Matt for a while, and I have a ton of respect for him. He's a, a great guy. And he comes up to me, and I swear, this is like unprompted. I don't ask him or anything. And he says, you talk with Judge yet? I was like, no. And he said, he's the best young kid I've ever been around. Mm. And, and, and it seems like every other piece of evidence, whether it's talking to veterans, whether it's teammates, whether it's opponents, whether it's people in the Yankees organization, corroborates that. Now, I understand that, that as a reporter, I don't get to spend as much time uh, with the athletes as I'd like to be able to render a judgment like that. But the people inside the clubhouse do. And Matt Holliday's not going to lie to me. He is a very straight shooter. And uh, when he says something like that, that carries a lot of weight with me. And Aaron Judge, in both of my conversations with him since then and, and all the other things I've heard, has done nothing uh, to, to dissuade me from believing that what he said is true. We're talking to Jeff Passan. All right, Jeff, you and I can go on and on about the Yankees, but let me ask you about the Astros. The Astros absolutely mashed against the Red Sox. We know what kind of an offensive team they are. What's going on here, and can they turn it around in the final two games, or has something happened, and is it going to be tough for them to get it back? I think it's twofold. Number one, uh, the Yankees have a lot better pitching than the Red Sox did, and they, you know, they've run into a bit of a buzzsaw here. Masahiro Tanaka yesterday was absolutely spectacular, and he has really turned things on this postseason. Uh, CC Sabathia is almost developing into like the Jimmy Key, David Wells type. And I didn't think that was going to happen when, you know, over the last couple of years when his, his velocity really dropped, I wasn't sure if he'd be able to make that transition. That's so difficult for guys to make from power pitcher to finesse guy. But he's, he's done it with aplomb so far. Uh, and, and Luis Severino's been good, and Sonny Gray was awfully good, too. But beyond that, and this was especially apparent in the games at Yankee Stadium, the, the Astros were taking different at-bats. And if you all look back at Carlos Correa's final at-bat against Tommy Canely yesterday, it was the type of swing that a guy makes when you want to get the hell out of the city. And I, you know, I wonder if the Astros couldn't have packed up fast enough and gotten out of New York because Yankee Stadium was an absolute house of horrors for them. They looked like a completely different team. And to be batting under 150 and to barely be slugging 200 five games into the American League Championship Series, they should be delighted that they're only down three games to two and that they haven't been swept out and, and their season's over at this point. Jeff, if I'm not mistaken, did you utter the word rubric and aplomb both in this interview? I know. It's, you know, sometimes I forget the audience, Jim. And I know you understand these things, but I apologize to those out there who, uh, whom I've sent to, uh, I would say their dictionary, but I know that clones don't own dictionaries. So I'm just going to say to a land of confusion instead. My man, know your room. Know your room. Know your room. All right, so Houston trader for Justin Verlander for moments like this tomorrow night. He was masterful in game two. How do you think he shows up when his team needs him the most? Well, uh, if it's anything like game two, uh, it's going to be as, as good of a playoff performance as I've seen in a long time. But the difference between game two and now is uh, Aaron Judge is locked in at the plate. And Gary Sanchez is locked in at the plate. And, you know, coming into the ALCS, neither of them was hitting. And I said, I said if either of them can get going, 
the Yankees are going to be a really tough out. Uh, now that both of them are going, that lineup all of a sudden is scary. And uh, the difference, though, I think, in Justin Verlander and just about anybody these days, and I include Clayton Kershaw, a guy who I think is the best pitcher in baseball, and I include Dallas Keuchel, who was so good in game one but struggled yesterday. I feel like Verlander, more than anyone, is capable of locking in in a big moment, recognize it, recognizing it, embracing it, owning it, uh, and becoming it. And, it, you know, it sounds really zen, but he has these these routines that he goes through. Uh, it, you know, my favorite Justin Verlander routine, and this is true, before every start, down on the landing below the steps of the dugout, there will be nine towels laid out. And after every inning, Justin Verlander will go and grab one towel just to sort of wipe himself off, clean himself off. And he expects to pitch nine innings every single start. Mm. And the fact that he has the nine towels down there every time, I think, is indicative of that. And and one of those things that just shows this guy is coming out there to, to shove it for an entire game and that five or six or seven or even eight innings isn't good enough for him. That's the guy you want starting a winner-go-home game. Jeff Hassan joining us. Jeff, before you go, I've got some real-time reaction. I never do this. Real-time reaction to what you said to start the interview. This is on Twitter. Let me read you a few of these things. At Total Big E tweets, Passan is going to crush lames in next year's smack-off. At Shocks Rock 17, Jeff Passan is shooting straight fire with the smack-off criticism. Matt in Van, did Jeff Passan, the idiot who was gifted a third-place finish, just take <laughs> issue with left winning? LOL. At the real left hook, that same judging got you third place, Jeff. Suck it up. At Jeremy Lanza, F yeah, Jeff Passan is laying waste to left and Laguna, pulling the nostalgia card, keep the smack strong. Hashtag gimmicky little bitch. And finally, Jeff, Ray in St. Paul tweets, war clones trying to figure out what Jeff Passan meant by jungle rubric. What's your reaction to the real-time reaction? I just love that there's real time. It, like, I, I don't mean to be, uh, uh, you know, to, to sound, come off sounding sensitive here, but the fact that you have, like, this engaged group of people on a daily basis, it really is, like, a special, enjoyable thing. And I hope you appreciate that as well. You've been doing this for a long time, man. And that you have as many people listening and reacting in real time at this says a lot about you, Jim, and, and the show you run uh, and the places. I, you know what? I make fun of the clones I'm uh, all the time, as I should, because they're, generally speaking, a terrible group of people. But just because it's a terrible group of people uh, does not make it any less special. And uh, it's just fun being a part of this match. But as far as the Yankees go, like I said, I put myself out there. I put myself way out there. I think about what I say before I say it. I say what I mean. I mean what I say. And I don't throw crap up against the wall or hot take it or sell my soul to the devil for a retweet or two. That's not what I do. That's not who I am. But if I feel strongly about something, I'm going to say it no matter how far I've got to put myself out there. And again, I normally would not do this, but I'm going to run this back so you can appreciate it for a second time. I put myself out there when I made these comments about Aaron Judge yesterday on this show. I don't know about you all, but I'm starting to think that this Aaron Judge cat is pretty good at baseball. Yeah, I said it. Aaron Judge is pretty good at baseball. Thanks, Alvin. 
It is my opinion. I'm not going to apologize for it. So yeah, bring it. Come at me. Now, I'll tell you something else. I'm going to do it even a little better. I'm going to take that a step further. This is how confident I am in my take and in the limb that I have stepped out on. Yesterday, I said, I'm starting to think he's pretty good at the sport of baseball. Then he went out and he did this in the third inning. Here's the 1-1. Hit on the ground. Fair. Over third. Down the left field line. Rolled to the left field corner. Extra bases. Gardner flying around third. They're going to send him. The relay throw home is not in time. It is a ribby double for Aaron Jurds. A hot shot over the bag at third. Gardner scores from first. And the Yankees take a 2-0 lead. Yankees radio. Yet another RBI double. One that gave the Yankees a 2-0 lead against Dallas Keuchel, who had dominated them in Game 1 and the 2015 wildcard game. Over those two games, the Yankees had a total of 7 hits. No runs. 17 strikeouts in 13 innings. That was until last night. Greg Bird drives in Starling Castro in the second to start things off, and then Judge goes to work in the third. His third straight game with an RBI. His sixth RBI in three games. And they've all come in key situations. Having seen that, I'm starting to think that Aaron Judge might be better than pretty good. He might be very solid. And Gary Sanchez, who went two for four with a home run, isn't bad either. So you take guys like Judge, Sanchez, Didi Gregorius, combine them with cats like Todd Frazier, Brett Gardner, Chase Headley. Then you get a gem from Masahiro Tanaka. And then you have the Yankees bullpen. And even the biggest Yankee hater has to admit, this is a good Yankees team. I know we're supposed to say that they're ahead of schedule, but when they're one win away from the World Series, I don't think they notice or they care. Again, they came back from down 2-0 to Cleveland, the team with the best record in the AL. They won three straight. Now they've come back from down 2-0 to Houston, the team with the second best record in the AL, to win three straight. And they need one more to get to the series. Ahead of schedule? Ahead of schedule. They're freaking here. Here they are. Here the bleep they are. Here we are. Here the f*** we are. And while the Yankees' recovery has been impressive, the Astros' disappearance has been mystifying. What happened to the Astros? Manager A.J. Hinch said the team had, quote, lost a little bit of our offensive mojo. Truth. That's the best offensive team in baseball during the regular season. That's honestly the best offensive team in recent memory. And everybody has stopped hitting at the exact same time. Part of that, obviously, is the Yankees rotation, which come to find out is way better than anybody knew. And they are locking up some unbelievable bats. Jose Altuve, Carlos Correa, they struggled in New York. George Springer, Alex Bregman, Marwin Gonzalez have six hits between them in the series. Josh Reddick, hitless. I mean, this is so unlike this Astros team. And some of that is because of the Yankee pitching, and some of that is just bad luck at a bad time. Now, that can change in a hurry, and it better, or their amazing season is going to be over, and the Yankees' incredible season will just keep rolling on. Their swagger is back. That stadium is rocking for the first time since they moved into it. And they're undefeated there this postseason. And they just came back on two teams that won 100-plus this season. You know, frankly, 
I've gone from saying you probably don't want to throw dirt on these guys to thinking they might actually be the team to beat. I knew they could swing it. I knew their bullpen was lights out. But that rotation makes them dangerous as hell. And so does that personal belief that comes along with the comebacks they've had. That no matter how bad it is, they're never out of a series. Hell, they're not even interested until they fall behind two games to none. You come back on Cleveland and Houston the way the Yankees have, and then you start to think you are unbeatable. And they might be. And even that thought's powerful. Frank Vogel is my guest. Frank, it is so good to have you back. How are you? I'm well, Jim Rome. How you doing? I'm doing great, Frank. It's good to hear your voice. Nice to have you on the show. Now, before we get to the win, Frank, i got to ask you first, before last night's game, you've been in this thing for a while, so what kind of feelings do you have before opening night? Are there nerves, any excitement? Is it just another game? How do you approach it? <laughs> yeah, I always have nerves uh, on opening night, you know, and regardless of how long you're doing this, um, you know, you just you get those opening game jitters, and it feels good, and we feel privileged to, uh, to be in this position. I uh, want to make sure our guys didn't feel it too much as well and uh, just try to calm their nerves down and make them concentrate on the game. Now, last night I thought was a really nice game for you in the sense that you had a 17-point lead. Miami starts to chip away. They cut it to two points with 239 left. At that point, Alfred Payton reminded everybody that in previous years, Frank, that that is the kind of game that they would lose, but it didn't happen last night. You turn it around. You win by seven. It's only one game, but how significant was that moment, and what did your team show you in the way they responded to that adversity? No, that's that's exactly what EP did in the timeout. He showed great leadership as a young player, and um, just told everybody, "Hey, in years past, you know, this is a game we'll we'll let slip away. We're not doing that tonight. You know, we got to execute on the offensive end, and we got to get some, uh, you know, great shot selection and get some stops on the defensive end. And our guys came out, responded to it, and were able to secure the victory. And let me ask you about a couple of other guys. Evan Fournier scored seven points. He had an assist from that point on. What did you make of the way he stepped up in that very moment? Well, four straight plays where he delivered. We put the ball in his hands with the game on the line, and uh, he made the right basketball play each time. One time for a three. Uh, when when White Todd was, uh, came over to help, he found Boots for a throwout, uh, long jump shot, and then he got to the rim twice when he was cheating back to Boots. So it's one of the things that uh, we challenged Evan Fournier to work on in the offseason was not just his passing but his decision-making. And uh, he made the right basketball play in all four plays and delivered and uh, was a big key, key to the victory. Orlando Magic head basketball coach Frank Vogel joins us. Also, Jonathan Isaac played in his first NBA game last night, and he admitted that he forgot to put his jersey on under his warm-ups at first, but then he goes out there for eight rebounds, a couple of blocks, and four points in only 17 minutes. What have you made of his work on defense and on the boards in camp and then last night? Well, he's a, he's a special defensive talent. And um, he's NBA ready. You know, he's going to get going to get beat here and there because he's going to got to learn the league, and uh, you know he's got to get his feet wet. But he has uh, a unique ability with his length, and uh, you know, and he's got great feet. You know, not all tall guys have great quickness and, and athleticism and, and lateral uh, speed, and, and he does. And um, he's a special defensive talent. He came out and showed some of that last night, and he made some really good plays on the offensive end as well. You know, you mentioned he's NBA ready. And when you and I spoke after the draft, we talked about your excitement when it came to Isaac. He turned 20 just two weeks ago, but he does look really comfortable on the defensive end. How do you explain somebody so young being as prepared as he is? I don't know. It's, it's tough to say where it comes from, but he's got a, a, a quiet confidence about him that, uh, you know, he plays like a mature, a mature player. He's, uh, he's very cerebral in terms of picking up what we're asking him to do, and he, he learns quickly. 
and uh, you know he really plays the game the right way, you know, which is very refreshing. You know, you're you're always constantly trying to get players to improve and to look at things differently and do things differently. But as a coach, you're no different. You're always looking to grow and change, especially as the game itself changes. And to that end, you made the point that what worked in Indiana may not work in Orlando with the way the game has changed. And then last year after the Serge Ibaka trade, you went with more small ball lineups. What was that change like for you? Well, it's, uh, it's one I've really embraced. And, um, you know, quite frankly, to try to play, you know, with two bigs and a power post offense in today's NBA, it, in my mind, is a, is a losing proposition unless you have special talents at the big position. And, um, you know, I think the, the style of play that we're playing right now really fits Aaron Gordon and most of our roster. And uh, it, it's it's the right style of play to you know give ourselves the best chance to be competitive in, in today's NBA with the you know the, the change in and uh, how the league plays. So uh, we we really adopted it mid season last year. Uh, we did this a little bit the last season I was at Indiana as well, and uh, you know I learned a lot of nuances that that uh, at that time. And uh, I'm I'm embracing trying to do this, uh, trying to skin the cat a different way. It's, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, but still, still not to belabor this, Frank Vogel, my guest. I mean, a lot of coaches in your situation might say, look, this is how I do it. This is how I coach. I've had success with a certain style. I'm not changing. Why didn't you take that approach? Well, I think every team is different. You know, you you have to play to your strengths. You know, our, our best players, some of our best players in Indiana were David West and Roy Hibbert. And, um, you know, to play a small ball style with, with that group, you know, wouldn't be the best style of play for that, for that group's talent. And, um, you know, you have to tailor your, your system, your offensive system, your defensive scheme uh, to your player's strengths. You know, I think, uh, you know, every coach has to have that in, in their mindset. If that means, you know, breaking what's comfortable to them uh, to do it a different way, you know, it's something that, that has to be done. And, uh, you know, it's been a challenge that I've embraced. At the same time, when I think about the Indiana teams that you had, Frank, I think about a lot of things. But first, I think I think about how tough they were. I think about the toughness. It would seem like spreading the floor – might lead to a different mentality, but can you spread the floor and still have that same level of toughness, or are those things just mutually exclusive? No, this is our plan, you know, and, and we're preaching it every day. We, we have to play with physicality. We, we can't be a soft team. You know, Golden State plays with space and, and, and all that stuff, and, you know, everybody's trying to play like Golden State, and nobody can be Golden State, but they play with great physicality and toughness. You know, on, on the offensive end with their screening and on the defensive end with their switching and their, and their rim protection. And, uh, you know, we got to make sure that, that that's got to be part of us. We, we weren't uh, a tough enough and physical enough basketball team last year. And, you know, something that, you know, we, we feel like uh, guys like Jonathan Simmons, you know, are going to come in and, and raise our edge a little bit and, uh, you know, continue to try to make our team a, a tougher, more physical a group that plays that style of play, too. All right, so you made it pretty clear. You're embracing this. You see the challenge, but you're embracing it. But then, because you're embracing it doesn't mean initially the players are going to. As an example, it seemed like there was more ball movement than in the past. Is it something that the players are embracing, or is there like in, I don't know, an unlearning process for some players where you have to deprogram and you got to show them how they want or how they need to do it again? How do you approach it with the players? No, we we've actually had that word on the board at times. You know, in particular, uh, when we when we shifted styles of play in Indiana, the word unlearn what we know or unlearn. And um, you know, you had we've had to break the mold of, of a lot of you know what we've all known to be solid, sound, you know, fundamental basketball is different now, <laughs> and it's it's taken a lot for us coaches to uh, to unlearn these uh, you know these. Uh, 
uh, ways of playing, and uh, you know, for our players to do that, it's taken a little time as well. This group in uh, here in Orlando has embraced it, um, you know, pretty well, pretty well in in, in terms of uh, just picking up all the nuances. Now, I know Sixers head coach Brett Brown is only interested in celebrating actual victories, so he's not going to be partying after last night. But I am, I absolutely am, because I loved what I saw, and I'm giving you all one final shot to jump on this bandwagon because the Sixers victory train is leaving the station and you best be on it. Make up your mind. Either get on or stay off because that thing is leaving right now. I mean, where do you want to start? How about the man himself, Joel Embiid? 18 points, 13 boards, 4 assists, and a block in just 27 minutes. And I loved every second of it. That's a dude in his 32nd career NBA game going for a double-double double in limited minutes. But he was so good, he went over the Brett Brown minutes plan. The dude got booed by Wizards fans in the introductions and waved his hands to his ears asking for more. I mean, I love this guy. I couldn't love this guy any more if he were my own son. I love this guy. And then you've got Ben Simmons. 18 points, 10 boards, 5 assists, 2 steals, and a block shot in his NBA debut. Not bad. Not bad at all. More importantly, he had only one turnover in 35 minutes. And he had moments like this with Joel. Beal has it to Wall. Wall against Embiid. John Wall blocked by Embiid. Get that out of here, Johnny Wall. Show with a block. Here's Ben at the other end. Oh, yeah. Ben Simmons. They're the Sixers stars. And they develop a great sequence there. Embiid with a block on the all-star wall. And Simmons scoops and scores at the other end. Sixers radio. Get used to it. I mean, do you want me to keep running down the box score? Because I will. Markel Fultz, 10 points, NBA debut. J.J. Redick, 12 from deep in his Sixers debut. Robert Covington, 29 points on the night. And I'm not in the business of making guarantees, but I'll guarantee you this. If Robert Covington is hitting seven threes and getting you nearly 30, this team is going to be special. How do I know? Because you were hearing trust the process chance in Washington. Check this. The Philly chance continuing. Indeed, egging them on. You see him in your upper right-hand corner. He's got real charisma. Trust the process. Trust the process. Hey, but enough of my yapping. What did the players themselves think? Joel Embiid, quote, I think we have a chance. I think we have a chance. We're all so young. We're still learning how to play with each other, you know. I'm learning how to play with Ben. Um, you know, got to find, got to find my spots. Um, same offense, but like it's kind of different, different rhythm. Uh, but uh, I think, I think we, I think we're right there. We just gotta play more together. I love hearing that because he's underplaying it. He's going casual. He's keeping things quiet and on the low. That tells me he knows something good is happening. Ben Simmons, quote. It felt like I was playing 2K, honestly. Just looking at Joel Embiid out there with the lights on his jerseys, I was like, man, I'm actually here. End quote. He felt like he was playing 2K. I felt like I was living a dream. This is what I've been waiting for. I have trusted the process. I have believed in the process. And now the process is happening. 
Now, that doesn't mean that all the highlights last night were from Philly. They weren't. The Wizards actually won that game. John Wall went viral with that nasty dunk where he dumped T.J. McConnell on the floor, exploded to the hole, elevated, and then threw it down. Everybody saw that. Everybody was talking about that. But you may have missed this. John Wall into the circle of a Gortat screen. Wall, left double, gets in the lane, feeds cutting Gortat, slices down the right side, and one. Slice through the right side of the restricted arc, and one. Eighth assist for John Wall, 115-108, Wizards 218 to go in the fourth. You may have missed that, and you may have missed this. Simmons drives, blocked by Oubre. Into the block ball, Porter. Ahead to John Wall, feeds it to Wall, stuck to hands. Field to Wall, 108-102, Wizards. And this place is going bananas. John Wall's a bad man. John Wall's a bad man, and when he's doing that, the Wizards can do bad things. The Wizards win the game, but the Sixers win the night. Embrace the process. Trust the process. Love the process. The process is happening. I love these guys. Philadelphia is amazing to me. I know it's only one game, but seeing what they have, seeing the process and the way it's playing out, seeing the young talent they have, seeing Joel Embiid out there getting up and down. And you know it's a big Brett Brown house anyway. I love these guys. I'm really excited. I have never been so excited after an open, opening season loss than I am Philly. Hey, listen, what do I care? I'm sitting here in L.A. native in the middle of Southern California. But from here to there, I'm hyped on these guys. I trust the process. I love the process. I can't wait to see more of it because the process is happening. A trust the process chant in Washington, no less. 1-800-636-8686. Philly fan, where are you? Sixer fan. What, it's just going to be me in California hyping your team and your process? And the Wizards, this is also a big Scott Brooks house. And they look good last night too. John Wall is a bad man doing bad things. They're going to do some damage. Northern California, D'Angelo. D'Angelo, good morning. What's up? How you doing, man? Good. I was calling to talk about the state of the Philadelphia 76ers, the doormat of the NBA. First off, I don't trust the process. It's one game. Joel Embiid, Ben Simmons, Markel Fultz, they're all good players, but they're bound to get injured. That's what happens in Philadelphia. You play for the 76ers, you just get hurt. So all this trust the process. And they did good last night. I'm not believing none of that. And guess what? How about you trust the loss? Because they lost last night. You know what I'm saying? So if you want to trust something, how about we trust that? They lost. I feel you. Jarrell Casey is my guest. Jarrell, nice to have you on. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's great to have you today. All right, so I know you're looking forward to Sunday's game against the Browns, but can you take me back for a minute to Monday night? You're playing a divisional opponent at home, prime time. You know all your peers are watching. You don't want to fall to two and four. Going into that game, did it feel like a must-win game to you? Um, honestly, personally, yeah. You know, um, I, you know, we, we definitely need to get back into the groove of things, need to get back into the, the race of the, you know this great season, and Winning this game definitely was big, especially playing against a divisional opponent. And also, like you say, on Monday night where everybody's watching and they want to see who, what we're going to be about. And glad and happy, you know, our team came out and they showed up and they was ready to play. And that's what it was all about on Monday was really getting after those guys. One, you know, getting our organization the respect after, you know, losing, losing to these guys for so many years. And then two, just, you know, overall team just trying to get get into that good groove to get our season back back underneath us right now one of the things that keeps coming up when offensive linemen talk about trying to block you is your mobility your quickness and that you do a great job of keeping them off balance and they never feel like they can get a hand on you or as one lineman said quote 
Jarrell Casey can put you in the mixer real quick, end quote. How satisfying is it then to put a guy in the mixer and get to the quarterback? What's that feel like? Oh, it's amazing. Um, when Once you feel you lost that guy and you know it's just you and that quarterback one-on-one, it's, it's the best feeling in the world, you know. Um, and you got to take pride in it because it's hard to beat those guys, you know. Um, you, it's, you know, you go through a whole game and you're only going to probably get four, three or four pressures on a the quarterback. They, they do a great job of um, actually picking it up. But, you know, when you actually get that gratification of actually putting that pressure on that quarterback, it's definitely an amazing feeling. I think every pass rusher understands what that feeling is. And I think it's it's, it's it's bigger than any other illegal drug out there when you get that sack. Jarrell Casey joining us. Now, you were a third-round pick out of USC, but from the moment you arrived in the league, you talked about wanting to be great and pursuing greatness. First off, where did that attitude and that approach come from? One more, one more time. Ask that again. From the minute you got to the NFL, you were a third-round pick, but you were talking about, I want to be great. I want to pursue greatness. I'm curious, first of all, where did the attitude, that, that approach come from? Honestly, it was always installed in me from, from coming from back in my heyday of at Long Beach Poly and playing through that time, you know, having players left and right come out of there who's all-time great from Long Beach and becoming staples in the NFL and, you know, making a household name for themselves and just growing up being around that, those people and having that motivation around you. I think that's kind of like where it all started, the, the mindset. But the biggest thing was really – you know, after playing and really feeling like I had, you know, good years in high school and in college, and you know, everybody still underestimate me. They don't. They still don't think I'm a good, a good player. They still think, you know, I got a lot, of, a lot to do to get to be the best. And that what drove me to be coming into the NFL and say, you know what? No matter where I'm drafted, no matter what, at the end of the day, the person across from me got to block me, and coach is gonna have to respect me after they see my game. And that that was what the whole thing is. Really, everybody knows after the NFL, there's nothing else left other than the Hall of Fame and leaving the state, leaving your name on this game, and that's the whole that's the whole mindset. Jarrell Casey joining us. I'm glad you mentioned Long Beach Poly, the home of scholars and champions. Now, my wife went to Poly. Her parents okay. went to Poly. Her brother's kids went to Poly. So I'm married into a family that's got three, go. three generations of Poly. We're talking about one of the legendary high schools in the country. So what's it mean to represent Poly, and how much pride do you take in that program and that you started there? Oh, man, it means everything. Um, like you say, man, so many people that come from there from not even just sports, from every entertainment background possible, different, you know, professions. And when you get when you got that much pride in the school, you got you to gotta love it. You got to rep it with the fullest. And everybody that knows you go to Long Beach Poly, you're going to rep it until you can't rep it no more. And I, I don't get enough of it. Everybody always asks, you know, what's the best thing? What's the best school? Long Beach Poly was the best for me. I don't, you know, I love SC. SC was everything for me. But – uh, number one to me is being at Long Beach Poly, playing with those guys, you know, childhood friends, and playing under, playing under those coaches and winning that many championships. You got to love it. Good for you, man. Terrell Casey joining us. Now, you're part of a defense with guys who love to hit, guys like Brian Arakpo, Wesley Woodyard, Tanium Couple. How would you describe the attitude of this defense? You just said it guys who love to hit, guys who like to get after it. The mindset is always to get on that field and make sure we dominate the team. And when you have that mindset in all, all three groups, from your secondary to your linebackers to your front, your, um, front four or front three, you have no choice but to be a dominant group. And that's what we try to pride ourselves on is everybody having that same mindset to go get after them and also, you know, to always just have the mindset to be be professions at what we do. And that's how that's how we've been working and that's how we're going to continue to work. Listen, one last time, you're talking about being a professional. In the offseason, you signed a nice contract extension. I mean, it had to feel great to put the pen to the paper. A lot of guys get a deal, and they might think, you know what, I earned that. Maybe I can put my feet up a little bit. But your feeling was, now I've got to go live up to it. You've always been driven. We talked about that. But did you find 
Did you find like you had to find another gear and work even harder after you did put the pen to the paper? Um, honestly, I didn't, man. I, honestly, I, when I get on that field and I get between those white lines, it's always go time for me. I'm always a person who got a lot of pride, so I, I, I couldn't imagine going out there not looking good on film. When I turn on that film, I got to make sure I'm in, I'm the top tier shape. I'm I'm getting the job done and I'm executing. So to me personally, I never can take the mindset of let's rest now because now you're paid. Because once you start resting, it's when you start looking bad on that film. And when you look bad on film, teams don't want you and you show not going to get into a Hall of Fame. Boy, you mentioned that a couple of times. I know that's important to you. And you talk about how important <laughs> it is that every time you hit the field, you want to show up a certain way and you know you're on film. The film doesn't lie. You were also the 2016 Tennessee Titans Walter Payton Man of the Year Award winner. It's quite an honor. When you got into the league, were you also setting goals for yourself off the field? And what's that honor mean to you? Um, honestly, my first my first couple years in the NFL, I kind of didn't really have too many passions of doing things off the field. I was more so just more focused on football and being grounded with when it came to the game of football. I love to go into the community and do my own, like, you know, with the team or you know, someone asked me to an event or things like that. That's what kind of started to get me into the groove of doing more of the community work myself because I started to see the joy of going out there and helping folks. So that's what really got me into the passion of, you know, being into the, the, the um, off-the-field surroundings is just the people that, that really was in this organization before me that was doing the things in the community, Michael Griffin, um, J- Jason McCourty, those guys, you know, they was real big in the community when they was here, and they invited me out and got me into it. And I just basically took over where they left off and really just kept on trying to move with it. And at the end of the day, I think, you know, the best thing in this world is people giving back and people giving those people that don't have it an uh, op- opportunity to, to in- enjoy it and an opportunity to get things that they ain't able to get on an everyday basis. You know, and you bring a smile on their face. That would that would really drive me to do what I do off the field. Clones, thank you very much for the listen, and thank you for checking out episode nine of the Jim Rome podcast with Bill Cower and Kevin Millar. TGIF, the grind includes Friday. Check back here tomorrow for more. See you then. I'm out. From the kids to Aunt Sue. Keep your whole family connected on all their devices with crowd-pleasing gig-speed internet from Xfinity. Now that's simple, easy, awesome. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY or visit today. Restrictions apply. Actual speed vary and not guaranteed.